Okay. Let's read. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there, not once nor twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city with both horses uh, and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Let's, uh, let's pray before we get into God's word. Father, we do thank you for your precious word this morning. We thank you that through it our faith is increased. And Father, we just pray this morning that as we look into your precious word, which you've given us and you've preserved for us, Father, I just pray that our hearts would be ready to accept whatever it has to tell us. Lord, I pray that your spirit be working in every heart, in every soul, and every mind, even now, Lord. Lord, meeting every need that there is. And Father, challenging us to live more fully for you. Lord, that we would grow a little bit more today. That we would be more like our Lord and our Saviour, who we seek to see one day, who we look forward to seeing face to face. So, Father, we ask for your blessing upon us now, and that your name might be glorified through this message. Father, that's what we seek in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the struggles that we have as Christians is that it's too easy to... Simply believe that what's in front of my eyes is all there is. Um, what I see in front of me is, is all that there is in life. But we need to understand, we need to appreciate more and more, and through God's word this occurs, we need to appreciate the fact that the natural world which is, exists, the physical world, is somehow intertwined with the spiritual world. There is a connection there. And you might say, well, how does... I'm not sure what you're saying. Behind... The physical world, in fact permeating throughout the physical world, is a spiritual world that we don't see with our physical eyes. But my, my hope this morning is that as I share this message with you, that you will understand that with our eyes, God allows us to see his kingdom at work. We don't necessarily need to see angels in front of us, but the more we are in tune with what God is telling us, the more we see through his eyes this world the more effective that you and I will be in glorifying him in our lives and the more effective we will be in reaching those who are lost around us. 
So my goal this morning is to challenge us through this particular passage to see the spiritual, to focus on the heavenly rather than the earthly, to put our minds or set our minds in heavenly places rather than on the earth. We don't need to be anchored down to this place. We don't need to be uh, limited in our vision. But what we want really is to see things the way God sees them and not the way the world sees them. So I want to share with you some, some points. And I think I've got about seven here that I'd like to share with you that, for me, come out very clearly in this particular passage. And the first is that there exists a spiritual world that permeates the natural world. There exists a spiritual world that permeates the natural world. The presence of these fiery chariots. Now these weren't, these weren't char- normal chariots that were set on fire. These chariots were God's chariots. These chariots were heavenly chariots. These were things, these were, and this was an army that the natural man could not see. The Syrian army, although they had encompassed the city around and thought they had um, uh, Elisha and his, uh, his, um, his servant at their mercy, did not see the army that filled the whole mountain right next to them. So the first thing I want you to understand is that there is an overlap of the angelic with the natural. And God from time to time, pulls back a curtain and allows certain people to see what's going on. You see, sometimes we get this impression that heaven is far away, some distant place that you have to travel to to get there. But I tell you that heaven is right next to us, that heaven exists in a dimension that we can't see and that God, the Bible says, is very close to each and every one of us. And that even now, the Spirit of God works in each and every heart. The kingdom of God, indeed, is around us. And the natural man can't see it. But we can. Because we are the children of God. And we have become citizens of that particular kingdom. So, there are many examples in the Bible. I'll I'll list some of them for you. That tell us that this spiritual world, this heavenly world, exists all around us. And we don't notice it. But it's there. And even now, there may be angels sitting right next to you and you don't realise it. The Bible tells us that that people have uh, have entertained angels unaware. In other words, visitors come to them, they've actually sat them down for a meal and that, that being was an angel, not a person. Let me give you some examples of what spiritual aspects the Bible might, might share with us or, or reveals to us. When the serpent tempted Eve... There was a snake that that tempted Eve. Do you think that was a physical snake? Do you think it was just a snake? It wasn't just a snake. We know through scripture that 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 being that either entered that serpent or or manifested himself as a serpent was indeed Satan himself. We know that. It wasn't just a snake that spoke to Eve. And do you think that the tree of life was just another fruit? It wasn't just a fruit. It wasn't just a fruit like you you eat an apple. This fruit had some sort of connection with with the spiritual world, that by eating this fruit, you lived forever. When God pronounced his judgment upon both man and Satan, do you remember when they fell and God says, you are now cursed? He cursed the whole, basically, the universe. Because of man's fall, the whole universe started running down. Now, do you think of that connection for a moment? This whole universe, 
as far flung as any star and any, and any uh, quasar or, or any black hole or any galaxy is, was affected by what happened on this little planet. Ever thought about that? That God says the whole universe is running down. Now, how can what Adam and Eve did in a small garden that God planted somewhere in the Middle East affect the entire universe? It's because there's a spiritual world that was affected by what they did, not just a physical world. When God pronounced his judgment upon man and Satan, it revealed something. It revealed that God's plan... Involved both angelic and physical man at the same time. In other words, he pronounced judgment on Satan and all the fallen angels and on man and his, and his uh, condition of sin and then created a plan to, to organise or fix both of those problems at the same time. Have you thought about that? That God's plan encompasses both the angelic and the physical. When, when, when the Lord Jesus Christ was destined to come to this, this, uh, this earth and to die for the sins of man, at the same time he defeated the armies of, of Satan. At the same time, God dealt with the angels as well as with mankind. And that was necessary, you see, because it was Satan who first overstepped the mark, didn't he? Satan was living in the angelic realm, not in the physical. Man had, had, God had created man to have dominion over this earth. Instead, Satan stepped out of his, his proper domain and stepped into the physical world and came into our territory. And he lured man and he tempted man and he actually got man to give up his dominion on this earth. And man easily handed it straight across to Satan and said, you know, even though I had dominion over this world, here you go, I'll give it to you. And ever since then, the Bible says that Satan has been the god of this world. But God's had a plan from the beginning, which is nice to know. God's plan for mankind also included his plan for the angels. And we are intertwined somehow between what God does with angels and what God does with us. When the Lord evicted Adam and Eve from the garden, do you remember what he placed in front of that garden so that people wouldn't access the tree of life? There was an angel and a flaming sword. So from the very beginning, God had already incorporated his angels into this whole plan. The role of angels alongside men started from the beginning. Before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, who was it that came to visit Abraham? There were angels that went to visit Abraham and it was angels that went to Sodom and Gomorrah and, and rescued Lot and his family. They looked like physical men, but they weren't. When Jacob was on his way to Haran, he dreamed of a ladder where angels ascended and descended upon the earth. And the Bible says that he, if you read that passage, it's a really interesting one. It says that he, was, he made himself a bed or pillows with the rocks that were there. Wouldn't have been a comfy pillow. Wouldn't have been one of those, you know, those memory foam ones. But the Bible says that when he when he placed those stones, and he made himself a bed, and he dreamed this dream of angels coming up and down this ladder from from heaven. Okay, the Bible says that when he woke up, he said, "This is the place. This is a holy place." And God spoke to him and said, "Yes, it is a holy place." And what he the Bible then says, he took the stone 
that he'd made himself as a pillow and he erected it as a, as a thing. But originally it said that he, he took many stones to do that. I don't know what happened, but something did. The angel of the Lord revealed himself to Balaam in order to stop him. Remember that with the donkey? And the donkey was on his way. Balaam was ready to, to, um, to curse Israel and, and do what he had to do. And there was an angel that stopped. The donkey saw the angel, but Balaam couldn't. An angel revealed himself to Gideon. Before Gideon was called to lead Israel against the Midianites. An angel of God presented himself to Samson's parents. Before Samson was born. And we've already seen during the last few weeks, during our sermons on Job, that even though Job was suffering all these things in his life, there was Satan playing his game in the background. We know that there's always a spiritual affecting the physical. There are Numerous examples of angelic involvement in the affairs of men in the Old Testament. And there are too many for me to actually mention. But suffice to say, it's, it's scattered throughout the whole Old Testament. Okay? Now, some might think that there aren't any angelic references in the New Testament or angels pulled back when the Lord Jesus Christ came in or maybe don't remember, but there are as many in the New Testament as there are in the Old. God hasn't finished using his angels to work with men when, uh, when Christ was born, it was the angels that came and announced his birth to the shepherds. It was the angel Gabriel that came to Mary and Joseph to explain the birth of the Saviour. It was the angels that came and presented themselves to the women who came to an empty tomb. It was the angel that, an angel that opened the prison doors to free Peter and the apostles when they were put in jail. And the Bible says that during the tribulation there shall be an incredible amount of angelic activity. The Bible is full of examples of, a, of spiritual activity that takes place in and around us. And I say in too, because God exists within us and lives within us. If you've given your heart to the Lord this morning, you've opened the door and God has taken up residence within your heart. And that spirit actually interacts. So the physical world coexists. And interacts with the spiritual world. And the spiritual world is revealed in the, in sometimes in the physical things that take place. Probably very often. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8. And we'll see what Paul has to say about this thing. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8 says, Unto me, and this is Paul speaking, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Christ Jesus. Now look at this verse. To the intent, and this is saying to the intent means to, for this purpose, he's, he's been called to do this thing, for this purpose, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, 
might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Did you understand that verse? That verse says that through the church, God displays to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, and this includes all of God's angels and all of the fallen angels, the wisdom of God. In other words, you and I are a living display of God's wisdom and how God dealt with the problem that happened way back in the garden. We are a living example of God's wisdom. God was able to, by the grace of his, of his only begotten Son, to not only rescue us from, a, from an eternity in hell, but also to deal with the angelic realm as well. And it's, we are showing them on a daily basis, your life and my life, and the way God's, God's word works within our hearts, we show the angels that are witnessing everything that's going on, we show them how wonderful God is. Isn't that a thought? Ever thought about that, that you are a testimony to angels who are observing you about how wonderful God is? Second point, the spiritual world sees a battle which rages between the angels of God and the demonic realm. There is a battle which is raging all around us, which we don't see. We're all nice and quiet here sometimes. You know, we're, we're all relaxed and peaceful. But around us, there, there are storms are raging. And yes, we go through our, our, um, our problems in life, as we've, you know, this morning. We, hear, we have good and then we have, we have bad news all coming at the same time and sometimes we struggle to deal with the whole thing. But I tell you that there is a lot more bad happening around us that we don't see and God shields us from. There's a battle raging. This battle that focused on Elisha, in other words, the king of Syria was ready to, to capture Elisha, possibly to kill him, is only one example of a, of a battle that, raged, that is raging in this world between the armies of the Lord and those of Satan. You know, whenever you read in the Old Testament that phrase, the Lord of hosts, you know what that means? It means the Lord of armies. That God is a commander of armies. And God is at war. And that war rages in places that we don't see. In Daniel, we see that the, um, the angel Gabriel, who was sent by God to give Daniel a specific message, was resisted by the prince of Persia. Now let me read out this passage to you, because I find this passage absolutely intriguing. It says in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, it says, Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, okay, do you think the, the armies of the, of the prince of, of the kingdom of Persia were men resisting an angel? I don't think so. The resistance that, uh, that Gabriel, and we know Gabriel's an angel, had was against the armies of Satan. They didn't want Gabriel to get through to deliver this message to Daniel. And it was Michael the archangel that, was able, that, that came in and helped Gabriel to get through. But for 21 days they fought. Think about that. For 21 days the armies of God fought against the armies of Satan and eventually God's, God's uh, army got through. 
just to deliver a message to Daniel. Do you think that stopped? Do you think that when we, when we share the gospel with someone, that Satan isn't doing his very best to try to stop that message getting through? And do you, don't, do you think that God's angels have stopped fighting for that, that message to be delivered? Think about that. But you and I are right in the middle of this, of this fight. You and I are right central to this message getting across. We are like the Gabriel, that angel Gabriel, who's been called to deliver a message and Satan does his very best to try and stop that message getting through. And if he can influence your life, if he can cause you to sin and cause you to fall in such a way that your message becomes ineffective because your life loses its testimony, then he'll do that first. We are in the middle of a war. But the beautiful thing is that this war has a definite end. This war, we know who wins and we are part of the winning team. The question is how we fight. The other side of the coin here is that it isn't just angels fighting against angels here. Angels don't just fight against angels. The Bible says because they had been called, God had called his army to fight against the Syrian army, right? The Syrian army was a physical army. And probably they were fighting against Satan as well, but God's army was ready to defend Elisha and his servant. The Bible says that we are involved in this battle in ways we don't appreciate, we don't understand. We are part of a much larger picture every day of our lives. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rules of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan has his own kingdom. And he has established his own kingdom to rule this world. The Bible says that he is the God of this world. And he, he's the same way you see this world. You see this world segregated into, into regions and, and with their own kings and with their own... Satan's done exactly the same thing. As any good commander, he has established his, his ranks within his army and he's also put certain demons in certain places to fight and defend certain strongholds that he has. We are in the middle of that fight. The Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we need to understand that these principalities and powers, these rulers of darkness and wickedness enthroned in high places have been enthroned in the hearts of men for a very long time. That man has bowed the knee to Satan from the beginning. And our job is to help them to see the bondage that they're in. Satan has a strategic plan to pick off, to isolate and to destroy. That's how he does it. He does it with members of a church and he does it with pastors and people who, who are called to give the message. You see, Elisha had a message to give, didn't he? Elisha had been given special revelation by God and what he was doing, whenever the king of Syria would say to his men, all right, we're going to do a raid. And this is how he would work, the king of Syria. He didn't go in full, you know, full on and just you know, have one complete battle. 
he would do raids. So one day he'd go and raid a particular area where he saw there was a weakness. And so he'd send his army in there and hope to do a surprise attack and catch the king of Israel off guard. But the problem for him was that Elisha was in such good communication with God that God was telling Elisha um, he's going to be there tomorrow. And the first thing Elisha did was go back and tell the king of Israel and say, listen, God's told me uh, the king of Syria is going to be down there in a couple of days. You might want to just prepare yourself. So every time the king of Syria went into Israel, thinking that he had a perfect plan and he was going to be able to um, make some headway, it always failed. Either the, 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 kings, the, the Israel army wasn't there or wasn't asleep or wasn't in a vulnerable state because they were warned every time. And the king of Syria started getting really upset about this because the Bible says it didn't have just happened once or twice. It happened more than that. So he thought to himself, hang on a sec, we've got a traitor amongst us. There's someone informing them about, about what our plans are. And his servants came back to him and said, there is no informant here, but we know what's going on. There's this guy, Elisha, and, and, and everything you say in your bedroom, he's actually telling the king of, uh, of Israel. Talk about a bug. Wouldn't be very comfortable after you heard that, would you? The king of Syria then realised he had to do something. So what he decides to do is to pick off the informer, to pick off the one who was creating all the problems, and that was Elisha. Elisha was the closest to God. Elisha was communicating and telling and feeding the information to the king. So Satan sought, the king of Syria sought to isolate him when he was by himself and to take him and to grab him. Now, I'm not sure whether he went to kill him. Probably would have uh, served his purposes. But I think it says he went to actually uh, catch him or capture him. Now, the Bible says that we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices. Lest Satan get an advantage of us. This illustration, this particular passage shows us that Satan is always on the lookout on how to attack. He always looks for vulnerable spots and where he can, where there is a person who shares the gospel or who warns other people about Satan's schemes, that person will come under Satan's sustained attack. Satan will seek to isolate that person and to attack him consistently. That's why I appreciate your prayers. Because I'm, I'm a vulnerable point in this church. And so is anyone. Eddie and Alan and anyone else who, who shares the gospel and who is, who is bold enough to warn people about these things okay, becomes vulnerable in this attack because Satan will try to pick, up, pick us off one by one. So this includes anyone who preaches, anyone who teaches, even Sunday school teachers. You become vulnerable to Satan's attacks. Whether you're an evangelist or anyone who gives himself to share the gospel, to warn people, you become part of Satan's enemies. And Satan's plan is to isolate, to make you vulnerable, and then to attack when you least expect it. So in summary, we are in an ongoing war with numerous, numerous battles raging around us, battles that we can't see, but we need to understand that they're there. The Bible then says that, well, this passage tells us, look at verse 15 and 16 of 2 Kings chapter 6. It says, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, 
Behold, an host compass a city with both horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. The natural eye is blind to the spiritual world. The natural eye of man is totally blind to the spiritual world. Elisha was a prophet of God, but his servant still wasn't even able to see what was going on. He wasn't able to see what spirits, uh, the reality of the spiritual world was like. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been afraid if he'd seen it from the beginning. When Elisha gave him the response, can you imagine that? You walk outside your home in the morning, you're probably half asleep, he's gone to get some water or something, and he just looks and he sees an army all around as far as he can see. And he runs back inside and he says, uh, uh, Elisha, uh, we've got a problem here. What are we going to do? And Elisha says, ah, don't worry. There's more on our side than on theirs. And he goes like this and he has a look at it and he can't see any of the Israeli army around. What do you think he's going to think of Elisha? Are you nuts? <laughs> I don't see anyone helping us here. So it's only then that the Bible says that, that Elisha asked for his eyes to be open, and God pulls back a bit of a screen and says, have a look at that. But men are naturally blind to the spiritual world around them. They fail to see the most fundamental spiritual realities because of their own sin. You see, the Bible says that sin and Satan blind the natural man. They can't see anything. In fact, they're, they're so caught up in their blindness, all they do is focus on themselves and all they see is more darkness and more sin and more problems. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. The main culprit for the spiritual blindness in men, the Bible says, is Satan himself. He has a direct reason to keep men blinded. And the Bible says, but if our gospel be hid... In other words, if the gospel is preached and it's not accepted, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Understand that Satan has a vested interest to keep men blind. Because while they stay blind and not aware of the truth, um, he has them under control. But the truth of God, the gospel, which is part of the whole truth of God, is that light which brings vision to people. It helps, to, it makes men's eyes open up so they can see the whole thing. But Satan's, Satan's strategy is to stop them from hearing it. He'll do a job of, if he can, to stop people from hearing the gospel. Have you noticed when you want to share the gospel with someone or you've invited someone to church, for some strange reason they don't come? Or something goes on and they don't, get to, they don't get to hear the gospel. Something goes on. Do you notice on a Sunday morning is when you're probably most attacked or a Saturday night is when you're probably most attacked as I do? Satan's job is to stop people from hearing the gospel or distract them from paying attention. So while they're listening, in listening range of the gospel, he's got them thinking about something else. Trying to get them to think about, oh, don't worry about that. Think about this. And he tries to divert them 
while you're, while you're telling them the truth. The other, the other game he plays is confuses them with multiple messages. There are so many paths today that people even know, they get totally confused. Which, which one is it? So Satan plants a small seed and says, listen, they're all the same. They all lead you to the same place. Yet there's only one, the Bible says, that God has made. There's only one path that leads to him. But the devil tries to confuse people with multiple messages. And, as we've already heard, he attacks the messenger. We live in a world full of darkness. And the Bible says that we, have called to be, we are called to be lights in this world. Does it mean that I'm going to be glowing like a... Like a uh, I don't know, what's, what glows in this world? A disco ball is what I, what I thought of, but I don't think it's a good example. I'm showing you my past, sorry. In other words, we are not glowing in a sense, but the Bible says that we are the deliverers of light. We are deliverers of this truth. We carry an incredible truth within us, and that truth is what we deliver to people in this world, and then they have the light, and they can see we have an incredible job to do, and we need to do it. But even though we deliver that light to people, the fourth point is that God opens up the eyes of men, not us. We don't open the eyes of men. It's God who opens up the eyes of men. Look at verse 17. It says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes, that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. It was God who opened up the eyes of Elisha's servants. It was our Lord Jesus Christ who opened up the eyes of the blind when he walked this earth. And it is God still today who opens up the eyes of the blind. Sure, we can deliver the message, but it's God's, God's the one who actually opens the eyes. We can lead a person to the truth, but we can't make them see. I can preach all day long over here. I can preach the whole day. But you know something? It's God who opens the eyes of your understanding. Not me. If anything, I'm just like a, a mule. You know that, that mule that spoke to, um, to Balaam? That's it. I'm nothing more. Only the Lord can open the eyes of a person. If someone is completely blind, blind, if your eyes don't work, if you're born blind, modern medicine can't help you. Nothing they can do. The strongest glasses, telescope, lenses, laser surgery, cornea transplants don't avail anything if your eyes were born blind and they don't function. It takes a supernatural cure that only God can provide. And for the sinner to receive spiritual sight, to see reality as God has created it, there's only one who can open up those eyes who was born blind. The Bible says in, in John chapter 9, verse 32, Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? But Jesus did. Jesus could open the eyes of a man born blind. Blind his whole life. Never saw anything. And then when he opened his eyes, he could see everything. Only God can do that. Because in order to fix the eyes of a man born blind... Do you know how the interaction between the eyes and the brain has to work in order for you to understand what you're seeing? But God did that in a moment. The Lord did that. No, no medicine, no modern uh, day um, technique can do that. 
And just as a man can be born blind, every man is born spiritually blind. Every man is born spiritually blind. Only Jesus can open up the eyes of those people. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. You like that? I hath not seen, nor ear heard. But you know something? That verse isn't finished there. Because for the children of God, it says in verse 10, that God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For the child of God, God does reveal his truth to them. Things that are unseen to the natural man become seen to the child of God. But the Bible says in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man can't receive those things, but the Bible says we can. God has made us with an ability. He's created something within us. He's given us a new nature which is able to see the spiritual world. We've been called not just to see, but as Elisha prayed for his servant, for his eyes to be open, our goal is for other eyes to be open as well, apart from ours. We can be the ones who lead people to the one who can open their eyes, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John 3.3, think about this for a moment. When Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he said, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See the kingdom of God. See it. So it takes a supernatural miracle for God to open up the eyes of a spiritually blind person so he can see the spiritual world, so he can see the kingdom of God working in this world. The world says seeing is believing, is it not? But God says believing is seeing. By faith, the Bible says that he opens up our eyes and he causes us to see things which we'd never saw before. If you've been saved this morning, you understand what I'm talking about. Because the way we saw the world before is very different than the way we see the world now. The way we, we interact with people is very different than the way we interact with them now. The view we had of God before is completely different to the view we have of God now. God has changed our vision. God has opened up our eyes. But the Bible says that even though God has opened up our eyes, we need to have more vision and more sight. You see, it doesn't stop there. For those of us who have been born again, for those of us who have accepted Christ and we've received a new nature, the Bible says that we are in a transitional state. I mentioned this yesterday morning to the men. We are in a transitional state. We are no longer a lost being, are we? So we were lost at one stage. At one point we got saved. But we're still not glorified yet. We're in this middle ground at the moment where God is using us and moulding us and helping us to grow step by step. But it's not an easy place to be because we can't see everything that's going on. And we need to grow systematically through God's word. We are in a transitional state because one day the Bible says that we will know everything. All of a sudden, our understanding will be completely opened and we will see everything as God sees it. But now, 
The Bible says we've got a bit like a baby's vision. We've got a baby. About to be born soon. And when that baby opens up its eyes for the first time, what do you think it sees? Well, it doesn't see very much, to be honest with you. It'll see bright lights. It'll, it'll notice large, large objects possibly moving, but it can't distinguish what they are. And it will take a full year for the eyes to develop to the stage where we have our eyesight and we can see and spot things out. Actually, it was amazing when I actually downloaded a thing recently about how a baby's vision actually changes over the course of months. Because I thought within a couple of weeks they can, they can see people, but they only see blurry, first of all, vision. And it takes months for them to distinguish colours. And it takes even more months to work for them to work out that Paul over here is closer to me than Alexis is over there. You see, because our eyes are very, they're incredible things. But it takes a while for our eyes and our brain to coordinate. You see, because if, if I'm focusing on Paul, my eyes have to do this. They go slightly cross-eyed. And you know what my brain does? My brain then works out how small that angle becomes or how big that angle becomes. And then by that angle, my brain then sees that Paul is close to me. But when I'm looking at Alexis, my eyes pan out more. They're more straight. So then my brain says, oh, that angle's different to that one there. Therefore, Alexis is further away from me. A baby doesn't get until about eight months. So as a baby's sight improves, okay, as it goes on month by month, week by week, its eyes actually are able to distinguish more and more and more. It's able to recognise things. And another thing I found absolutely incredible was you can take this pulpit, right, for instance, and if I cut, if I, if I shielded most of this thing but showed you the corner over here, right, you'd still know it was the pulpit, wouldn't you? How would you know? Because what your brain does is it takes that, that section and it extrapolates from a previous picture that you had in your mind and it says, I recognise that, even though it's hidden, it's the pulpit. Baby can't do that. Baby can't do that straight away. It needs to see the whole thing to, to, to recognise what it is. So we have an incredible thing that God's given us, but we are in this, this transitional state getting better and better vision. Do you understand my analogy here? We are like babies. When you're born again, God gives you a new set of eyes, just like a baby. And you open up your eyes for the first time and you see the light. And you say, wow, look at that, that, that thing. I've never seen it before. But as you grow, as you begin to mature, your eyesight gets better and better and better as a Christian. The problem is, with a lot of Christians, they keep their eyes shut. And if you keep your eyes shut to God's truth and to God's word, your eyes don't develop. And you don't see as well as you should see. So, the call for us, and the need for us is to have better and better sight. And as we learn and as we grow, the Bible says God uses his word to help our, our visions get better and better. As we allow God's light, which is his word and his truth, to come into our lives and into our minds, the Bible says our vision gets better. Our knowledge of him, our knowledge of the heavenly, improves. We have 
need to improve our sight. We need to exercise our spiritual sight. If we keep our eyes closed and we're asleep most of the time, you won't improve your vision. And we need this vision. We need better vision to be able to lead others to the Lord. One of the greatest criticisms Jesus had of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the lawyers of his time is that they were blind guides. Get that? Blind guides. They'd, they'd never had their spiritual eyes opened. But they pretended and, and, and paraded themselves as teachers of the truth. But look at some of these things that Jesus says. In Matthew 23, you don't need to turn there. Verse 16, he says, Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. Jesus clearly taught a number of times he called these people blind guides. In other words, their eyes weren't open to the truth. They had the truth, but they didn't know how to, how to share the truth because they themselves were blind. And in John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I am come into this world. For they which see might not see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say we see, therefore your sin remaineth. In other words, they thought they were all well and good. They thought they were fine. We're the righteous people here. But all their sins were still upon them. They hadn't got to the first stage and humbled themselves before God. They were still blind. And the Bible says that if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a ditch. So it's important for us to improve our vision because in improving our vision, we can genuinely bring people to the truth. We don't need to be blind guides. We can be guides that actually say, see that direction? That's the way you should go. Here, come. Let me take you by the hand. And even though they can't necessarily see it, they can put a bit of trust in us. And they will. The Bible says in Psalm 119, Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. In verse 105 it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is the word of God that brings light to men. It is the word of God that improves our vision. The more we look through that lens, the more we see this world as God sees it. That's what we need to understand. And it's by the action of the Spirit of God that our vision of this spiritual world improves. God's word is critical in being able for us to see exactly what's going on. You can't see the kingdom of God until your eyes are looking by faith through that word. That's why the Bible says that the child of God walks by faith and not by sight. By faith, the eyes of the blind are open to spiritual truths and those spiritual truths are what govern everything. Am I saying you'll see angels? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I'm not saying you'll see angels. But it will make you more perceptive about how God's working around the place. It will make you more sensitive 
to people's spiritual condition. It will help you to see people as they genuinely are, not as the world sees them. You will see your brother with better clarity. You will appreciate his condition more. You will be more sensitive to their needs. You will show grace. You will be more humble. You will be more loving. You will be patient and kind. All those things the Bible says when you truly see through God's eyes. You'll see God differently. The more knowledge we have about God, the more we love him. The more God reveals himself to us through his word, the more we appreciate what he's done for us. That's being spiritually... That's, that means, that's what it means to have spiritual vision. You appreciate God more. You see your brother with, with God's eyes. That's why 2 Corinthians... Turn with me there and we'll, we'll just about to close up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Second Corinthians 5.16 says, Wherefore, henceforth, from this point on, know we no man after the flesh. In other words, we don't see them as just a physical being. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In other words, we don't see Jesus the, way, the same way we saw him before, as just a man in history that the world sees. We don't see the people around us as physical beings anymore. We see them for who they really are, for who God has created them to be. But you know what's even more important, and I'll close off with this particular thought? It allows you to see who you are more. Because when you have proper spiritual vision... It's not just God and the people around you that you actually get to recognise and see for who they actually are, but you will begin to see yourself for who God says you are. Now, some of you are already thinking, oh, yeah, because I'm a, I'm a sinner and, and I'm all... No. God doesn't call his children sinners anymore. You won't find that in the New Testament. But God does cause a lot of things that we struggle to even comprehend because when we look at each other, we think, how can I be those things? But the Bible says that you, are, you and I already exist in a spiritual world. Whether you, whether you understand this or not, when God looks at you and me, he already sees us glorified. He already sees us as his child. You, are, you and I are already citizens of heaven, believe it or not. Citizens of heaven with all the rights that every child of God has. With all the abilities that God says that you have. You are already more than conquerors, the Bible says, in Christ Jesus. A conqueror. You are already ambassadors to this fallen world, chosen by God to represent him and his kingdom. You are already a kingdom of priests to God. And the Bible says you and I already sit in heavenly places. So while you're sitting in that blue plastic chair... Understand this, that you sit in heavenly realms even now. That when God looks at you, he sees you as his warriors. He sees you as his subjects. You aren't just like everyone else in this world, even though sometimes you may feel it. If you truly saw yourself as God sees you, you would experience the relief that the servant of Elisha felt when he saw the armies of God. 
Relief because no, God no longer calls you a sinner but a saint. God no longer calls you lost but found. God no longer sees you as an enemy but calls you a friend. He no longer calls you a citizen of this world but a citizen of his kingdom. You have as much right as any angel to approach the throne of God. As any angel in heaven, you can approach the throne of God with your petitions and your prayers. Think about that. That when we pray here on this earth, we are at the same time approaching and standing before the throne of God as his children. In Christ, you are already accepted in the beloved. When God sees you, he doesn't see sin, but the precious blood of his own son. If you've trusted in Christ Jesus today, you are a new creature. You have a new identity. You have a secure future. And if you understand that, there, is, there should be no fear of what Satan or this world can bring against you. And we should answer this world. And we should look to them and we should say, fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. The Bible says, or it's been said, that you and God make a majority. If you are together with God, you are the majority. Remember who you are this morning. Remember to improve your vision through God's word. Remember who you are because this world needs us. This world needs us to see for them. Otherwise, they'll be blind forever. God bless you. Thank you.